Welcome to Ottawa Valley Community Church, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. Hey, we're in the beginning of a, of a series. Uh, we often preach in series here, if, if you're not familiar with, uh, with that. Um, the idea in doing that, of course, is to uh, really give us an opportunity to take a subject, a topic, an idea, and just unpack it over time and to let it go deep, a little deeper than we can uh, with just one-off messages. And obviously, uh, this Advent season leads itself and lends itself for us uh, to take some time to really engage with the Christmas story and to really uh, get all that we can out of it. Um, it's a story that we sort of, as some of us have kind of a Sunday school level understanding of it, and, and we, we kind of love the little bits. We love the shepherds. We love the angels. We love the wise men. Uh, all of that. We just kind of enjoy those little bits of the story, but uh, hidden in the story is some really, really deep uh, theological meaning that actually uh, should be really transformative for us. So our heart as we engage uh, with the story is to just hit some of those key ideas. Uh, this first uh, message, we're going to talk about the idea that we really need a Savior, uh, that we really need a Savior to come and to uh, meet with us, to transform us, to uh, make us new. And we're going to talk about that longing that we have. That's why we sang songs like, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Did you hear the longing in that song? Just crying out for the Lord to come. So, so this week we acknowledge our need for a Savior. Uh, next week we're going to talk uh, about how our Savior draws near. Pastor Ivan's going to be speaking and he's going to touch on how we have a Savior who can identify with us the identification of Jesus, that he is God, very God, creator of the whole universe, yet came in a package small enough uh, to uh, be someone who could experience what we experienced, uh, touch us in ways that, that we can believe that he can touch us because he was both fully God and fully man. Uh, the week after that, we're going to talk about uh, the significance of the virgin birth and the holiness and purity of who Jesus was. So we can understand the purity of the sacrifice of Jesus and know uh, that he is a God who is good enough to save us. He is a God who can save us. We understand the depth of that. And, and on it goes throughout the, uh, the, the rest of the series. And we're going to culminate on the last Sunday with this idea that he is a savior who is a king. He's a savior who is a king, a savior who is a leader. And so we're just going to engage uh, with this story and those key theological ideas as we go. Uh, but we're going to start with uh, this week, the idea that we need a savior. Uh, Isaiah 1, uh, 9 to 7. And we read that text already. But how many of you know that just by looking uh, around the world and just sort of zooming out and looking at it, it's clear that the world needs a savior. It's fairly, fairly, fairly obvious. You know, we don't need to spend a lot of time uh, unpacking that. But if you just look at uh, that, uh, the, the pictures of the world, like uh, you see images on your screen from uh, uh, conflicts in Africa. Uh, you'll see uh, on, the, on the bottom, um, I guess, bottom your right-hand side, uh, just an image maybe representing some of the poverty that our First Nations people in Canada experience. Uh, on the bottom corner, you see uh, children sort of scavenging in a garbage dump. And I remember my experience in Guatemala with uh, kids in the garbage dump and, and 
it was their home, it's where they're living uh, in the midst of that, that incredible uh, challenge. Uh, you see the smog over uh, Beijing there um, in, the, in that other image. And then here's a, a North American image, you know, the couch potato. <laughs> How many of us feel a little bit of the gloom uh, of that sometimes? Being alone and uh, wondering what our life's about and endlessly clicking or scrolling through uh, the TV, we see uh, a gloom in the world that uh, God wants to address and that he has addressed through Jesus Christ. But the world is longing for a savior, whether they know it or not. And we're going to just engage with that. Let's just read Isaiah uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, and we didn't read this as part of our text, so, but this is going to give us a little bit of historical foundation. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in latter time, he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So what we're doing is we're looking at this scripture, we're looking at this text, we're realizing this is written, uh, spoken by the prophet Isaiah. This is spoken uh, over 700 years before the time of Christ. 2,700 years before our present time. So this is one, something to just acknowledge and recognize the powerful uh, prophetic way God had of speaking about things before they ever happened. So we're gonna look at this text, this prophetic uh, prediction of Jesus and who he was and the hope that he's bringing. But the first thing the prophet does is he gives us this text is he establishes uh, the, the message that the text is coming into. He establishes the context. He says, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Um, if, if we look at that next image, we're going to see a map of the uh, promised land and the land allotments for the tribes of Israel. Uh, the land of Zebulun and the land of, of Naphtali are lands up in the north in the kingdom of Israel. Uh, the land of Zebulun surrounds one side of the uh, sea of Galilee and the, the land or the land of Naphtali surrounds one side of the sea of Galilee and the land of Zebulun is that purple little country off to the side. Uh, these were just places where the sons of Jacob and their, and their communities, when they came out of Egypt and came into the promised land, were allowed to settle and allowed to build their homes. But what had happened in the, in the hundreds of years between that time of settling in this incredible land of promise, this incredible land flowing with milk and honey, this incredibly beautiful place that could have been a place of glory and a place of peace and a place of beauty, uh, became a place where the people had fallen into to idolatry, had fallen into all kinds of sin and all kinds of brokenness, and had given away their hearts and given away their lives uh, in compromise. And if we look at that land uh, in, in that time and in the time of Isaiah, it was a place of, of essentially a, just another pagan land with a, a memory, barely a memory of the story of Yahweh. There was a, an understanding, there was some knowledge of, of the scriptures, there was some knowledge of the Torah, but basically the land was completely given over to darkness. And at this stage in the journey, uh, God is beginning to warn the people about what's, what's happening and what's going to happen to them. For years and years, the prophets had been speaking to them, calling them back, calling them to holiness, calling them to follow God. And uh, by the time we get to Isaiah, in, in earlier verses in this text, uh, we see them described as uh, this land in the north as a tree that is about to be cut down. 
Judgment is coming. Finally, God is going to do something severe and something drastic to get their attention. He's warning them that the nation of Assyria is coming to take them. They are a tree that is being cut down. And then to, to take it further, how many of you cut down a tree and then just burn the stump, like just for spite, <laughs> right? This tree is to be cut down. The stump is to be burned. There's a glimmer of hope in that prophecy that there's still life to spring forth from it. Uh, the other image that's used is that ultimately they, they will be metal refined by fire. God is going to take the nation of Israel and put them in a crucible and, and burn off everything that's impure. Does that sound fun to anybody? Does it sound like a lovely Christmas message so far? Everybody, everybody feeling Christmassy yet? Feels good. Woo, feel great. <laughs> Sometimes those images, images of land like that, images of compromise and image of pain and, and the gloom that's over those lands might be something that we could say, yeah, maybe not with the depth and not with the violence that they experienced in that time, but I could say that there are places in my life where I've experienced gloom. And then judgment comes. In the days of Pekah, we're just getting Christmas here, here as we go. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, uh, the king of Assyria came and captured Eon, uh, Ibel Beth Mika, uh, Genoa, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, and all the land of Naphtali. And he carried the people captive to Assyria. So Isaiah was prophesying in, in the time when uh, the recording of, of Second Kings was being written, and he's basically warning about what this text tells us, that essentially Assyria is going to come and take the land. And when Assyria came to take the land, they were uh, brutal. Uh, they had advances in chariots and weapons and iron armor that were far beyond what Israel had. They were a military powerhouse. They were brutal. When a city was taken, like that stump we talked about earlier, uh, it was burned. All of the trees in those towns were cut down. Uh, the Assyrian soldiers were rewarded by, for each severed head that they brought. And Assyrians counted everything. So we actually have stone tablets uh, with the counts of the heads of people uh, being taken off. That soldier took this many heads. This soldier took that many heads. The Assyrians counted and recorded everything. Uh, tablets from the scribes keeping those, those kills. And it wasn't just enough to kill the farmers and the people, but people who were nobles had their noses cut off, their ears cut off, their hands and feet sliced off. And these guys in this next image that you're going to look at, this is a tablet that was found in a temple in Syria, is a, is a, is a recording of the, uh, the basically the pillaging and the destruction of the people of Israel and them being carried off captive. The ones that weren't killed and had their heads cut off and, and, and maimed and murdered were basically just carried off and resettled in Assyria so they could be assimil assimilated, essentially, and just disappear. And so from that moment, we have uh, the destruction and disappearance of the ten tribes of Israel, and they're absolutely gone. Imagine the gloom on that land. Imagine the brokenness on that land. Here's a, here's a quote from a tablet. All the chiefs who, I, who had revolted, I flayed with their skins. I covered the pillar. Merry Christmas. Uh, some in the midst, I walled up and sealed alive. Others on stakes, I impaled. Still others, I arranged around the pillar on stakes. As for the chieftains and royal officers who had rebelled, I cut off their members. 
Merry Christmas. <laughs> right, there, there, there is uh, in the ancient world and there is in the world that we live in now, I, we live in a very protected place. We live in a very safe place. We're not always happy about what's happening in Canada, but there are places in the world that experience similar levels of, of violence, similar levels of gloom. And so these survivors are taken captive from the land. And that's the gloom of Zebulun and Naphtali. And if we look at the next image, we can maybe imagine that our lives are like lands that in some areas have gloom. Is there a place in your life where you've compromised your intellect by what you've allowed to enter into it? And your mind has been taken captive by uh, thoughts that are impure and unclean, unclean and just uh, pagan thought? Have we let our minds be taken over? Uh, maybe it's your self-image. Maybe your understanding of who you are isn't based anymore so much in uh, who God sees you to be and the wonderfully made creation that you are. Is there a chance that your self-image has been compromised and taken over uh, by Instagram and the scrolling through the images of all the pretty people with who are photoshopped? Has your image, has your self-image been taken over? Has it been compromised? Maybe it's your relationships. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe there's a brokenness there. Maybe there's an inability to forgive that is a compromise in your life that is producing gloom in your life. Maybe there's a gloom over your finances. Maybe you've looked to wrong sources. Maybe your heart is filled with greed. Maybe you wrestle with envy. Is there a gloom in your life over those things? Maybe it's your working life, your vocation. Maybe it's your physicality. That's an area of struggle uh, for me, a constant temptation not to go through that drive-through and grab that burger. Constant struggle to exercise. There's a gloom in, in my physicality sometimes over the wrestle with that. Or maybe it's in your sexuality. Maybe it's uh, wrestling with pornography or wrestling with other things. We are people who are in need of a savior. Raise your hand if you need a savior. Come on, we are people who need a savior. And so in that gloom, and I'm hoping you're feeling really gloomy because it's about to get better. <laughs> in, in that gloom, this, this incredible light, this incredible word of encouragement comes from Isaiah. He says, but there will be no more gloom for those who are in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. There will be no gloom. Something is coming. Something is happening uh, later in that verse. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. This is a predictive text. This is him saying there is about to be in that exact physical place. There is about to be something glorious. That land that was once filled with gloom is about to be transformed. It is about to become a place of glory. And we look to Matthew chapter 14. Uh, we see Jesus coming up to dwell in that land as a person coming to minister. It says, in leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Jesus left and came to live in that place, the light, the glory, uh, the person who was to become the savior of the world. And Isaiah goes on, or and uh, Matthew goes on to say, hey, he did this so that it would be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. 
And then uh, going to the end of that segment of the text, from that time, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. In that land of gloom, Jesus comes with a word. He says, repent, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is coming. Uh, Things are about to get good. I am about to establish myself in the world. In the former time, contempt and gloom. And now there's about to be glory. And the text goes on. We're just into verse 2 now. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep shadow, on them a light has shone. John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 1, 4, 5. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it or understood it. He is the light coming into the world. Imagine, how many of you remember as kids, how many of you, anybody ever, was ever a teenager in this place? I think there were a couple of teenagers. I think you're probably going to be able to remember what this feels like. You remember being asleep in your bed and you're just kind of sleeping in and you've got your curtains closed in your room and it's all dark and you're just nestled into your little cave. I imagine it as a, as a teen boy. It's kind of like my man cave. It's kind of got this teenagery man funk smell going on in there. And the, the door is closed and the air is not moving and there's just this, this weight of gloom in the place as you sleep and as you rest, right? Any, any teenagers remember that? Or any parents ever gone into your kid's room when it's like that? My dad was really gentle and kind as a father, and he would just quietly come into my room and just crack my door open a little bit and just let a little bit of light in and say, Aaron, could you please wake up? <laughs> That's a lie. Uh, <laughs> My dad was not quiet or subtle at all in the morning. And he would come into my room and he would burst open and the door would bang against the wall and the light switch would come on. Good morning, good morning, good morning. It's time to rise and shine. And he would sing me awake every morning. My children, you should be so thankful that I am so much nicer than my dad. Um, But that's what it's like. That's what it's like, this light and life coming into the world. And imagine that moment. Can you imagine the moment we're going to look at this story uh, coming up in, in, in just a few days, the story of the wise men. Imagine the angels over that land in the north of Israel. Imagine the gloom for centuries. They've been watching over the land. You know the story? The heavenly host coming and announcing the light to the shepherds. And the glory of the Lord shone about them. Imagine that after all of those centuries of gloom and darkness, the shepherds got to click on the light switch and say, hey, the king is here. The light of God is in this place. And in the same way that we wrestle with gloom in our hearts, gloom in rooms in our hearts, gloom in our minds, gloom in our sexuality, gloom in our finances, Jesus wants to come and be born as light into those dark places. He wants to come in power and he wants to Turn on the light and he wants to sing the song. Good morning, good morning, good morning. It's time to rise and shine. We're meant to have the light of life. 
inside of us. It goes on to say, you have multiplied uh, the nation. You have increased his joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. All of this land that was raped and pillaged and all of the, uh, the, the battle that had rolled over the land back and forth over years, all of a sudden begins to be uh, productive again. All of a sudden it begins to multiply. Uh, we can maybe appropriate this first part of the verse. You have multiplied the nation. You have multiplied the church. And you've increased its joy. A time is coming for a multiplication of the church. Time is coming for harvest. Time is coming for provision. Going on to verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken. Are there areas in your life where you're oppressed? Are there areas of your life where things uh, beyond your control weigh you down? Are there areas of your life where you're in bondage to sin? Are there areas of your life where you're stuck in addiction? The Lord wants to come and break the oppressor, break the staff of the oppressor that is over your shoulders as we cry out, as we pray for one another, as we minister to one another, as we allow the Holy Spirit to work among us. He wants to set us free from our addictions and set us free from our bondage. And, and even when we feel weak and powerless, this beautiful reference here, as, as broken as on the day of Midian, right? That's a reference to the story of Gideon, right? Gideon with his 32,000 soldiers is coming to take on the armies of Midian. And the Lord says, oh no, I think you have too many soldiers. Let's, uh, let's just cut back that number a little bit and, and, and maybe we could, we could reduce that and, and see how it goes. Maybe we'll let me lead the army. And God whittles down the Gideon's army to 300 people against a vast horde of the Midianites. And with 300 people, he defeats them. God turns the enemy's swords against each other. Is there oppression in your life that you feel you can't get past, that you can't get over? The Lord wants to come into our lives as a Savior and transform us and make us new and fight the battle for us. And even in the pain of that battle, in, in the grief of that battle, um, looking at the next verse, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Look at this image, God taking uh, even like the clothes of fallen enemies and the clothes of the soldiers uh, who had been, you know, literally soaked in blood from the violence and the pain, the struggle that we have in our lives. And God says, even that, even that, I can make fuel for a fire that will warm your hands at night. Even from the pain of your conflict, even from the pain of your struggle in life, even from uh, the difficulties that you face in terms of your suffering as you walk through the journey, ultimately I can take even those broken things, even those signs and symbols uh, of the agony of conflict, I can take those things, I can roll them tightly, I can put them in the fire and they can warm your hands at night as they're destroyed and consumed. Beauty from ashes. Beauty from ashes. And this all culminates for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. All of this 
victory, all of this transformation, all of this turning evil to good, all happens for to us a son is born because to us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders. And we're going to come back to that in, in just a minute, but you've, you've got to understand this incredible pivot point in the text. All of the goodness that is about to come to humanity, all of the light that is about to come, all of the deliverance that is about to come, all of it comes through the giving of this child. All of it comes through this person, Jesus. It says his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And there's just a beautiful picture in this. We can look at the next slide. Just to take a second to unpack something linguistically here for us. Uh, we see those four names and the way we sort of can translate them into English most easily is to sort of write them out as a list. Four things, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. But that's not how the Hebrew mind would see that text. The Hebrew person who reads it would see that word for God, El, and say that word is, is elevated above the other words. That word is the word that all of these other words in this sequence are describing. So it, it, it's the guiding word of that phrase. And so we see wonderful counselor, mighty God, who is the mighty everlasting father. God, who is the wonderful counselor. God, who is the Prince of Peace. And here in Isaiah, uh, predating uh, the time of the coming of Jesus, by 700 years, we have a picture of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Hebrew writers, it's one of the, the controversial things that, that uh, is, happens in scholarship. Uh, Hebrew writers who look at this text um, in, in the time before Christ, that, that scripture was translated into Greek. And the Hebrew scholars who said, I can't possibly change a jot or tittle. I can't change a word of this formulation in the Hebrew. But when we translate it into Greek, we can fix it. And in the Septuagint translation, what they did was they said... Um, God, who is mighty, everlasting Father, wonderful counselor, or counselor, wonderful, and giver of peace. And they attributed all of those things to God, but they broke it down so that those words blended into one another and didn't come out as the text says in its context as names. But the Hebrew text uh, doesn't, doesn't do that to us. The Hebrew text gives us these beautiful names for God. God, the mighty everlasting Father, God, the wonderful Counselor, and God, the Prince of Peace. We have this beautiful picture of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in communion with one another. And it says of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. There will be no end of this government of, how many of you need a wonderful Counselor? <laughs> I know I do. How many of you need someone to bring peace in the world? Right? How many of you need... Look at this image. Let's go back to that image. Mighty everlasting Father. How many of you know God as holy and mighty but wrestle to know him as Father? 
How many of you think he's just such a lovely father and, and need to know him as holy? I know Jesus, high and holy. I also need to know him rock and rolly. We need a father who is tender, who is loving, who is compassionate, but also one who does judgment and holiness. And in that beautiful picture of mighty everlasting father, we have those two tensions that are held, given in that one name. And so the government uh, and of his peace, there will be no end on the throne of his father David and over his kingdom. This beautiful promises of the restoration of the Davidic kingdom to establish it. I'm going fast through the text here for the sake of time. To establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth. And what will accomplish it? His zeal. His zeal, that word there in the Hebrew is the, Greek, is the word kina. And that means uh, not just that, like a military zeal, but it means it's a romantic word. It's a romantic language. It means, um, it means jealous ardor. We talked about this actually last uh, Christmas Eve Eve. It is a jealous ardor. God is jealous for you. He wants you. He longs for you. He has to have you in his life. He loves you. And all of this is accomplished by that zeal. But going back to our pivot verse, for to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And what we have to notice is this word given. To us a son is earned. To us a son is deserved. To us a son is given. The only path from the gloom of your life is grace. The only path out of the gloom is the receipt of a gift. The receipt of a person. 2 Timothy 1, 9 says this. He saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus. Because of his own purpose and grace, given before ages began. Think of that. That's something that, uh, that we see in uh, John 1, 1, the existence of Jesus before creation. This gift was given. This gift was intended before the world was made, before he spoke it into existence. He intended to save it. Before uh, you sinned, before you did anything of wickedness in your life, Jesus intended to save you. He intended to redeem you. A gift was prepared. Salvation was made possible for you. Glory. For by grace, Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, but so that no one may boast. This gift. That word 
uh, to us a son is given, that son is delivered that we looked at earlier. He's been delivered to you. The other place we see that word in the New Testament is when Peter is preaching um, in, in his great sermon in the book of Acts. And you remember that story. They all are filled with the Holy Spirit and they come pouring out of the room. And uh, Peter is asked, what's happening here? What's going on? And he begins to preach. And he preaches this message telling the story of Jesus. And he arrives at, at, in verse 22 of Acts 2. And he says, this men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, talking about the incredible ministry of Jesus. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up. But God raised him up. He was delivered into the hands of humanity. He is a gift who is given to us. Delivered to us. And we crucified him. And even in that violence of crucifixion, even in that wickedness in our hearts, a sacrifice was made that redeems you and I, that saves us. We were given a gift, a child in a manger, and we destroyed it and it rose. We destroyed it and a sacrifice was made for the sins of all mankind. He saved us. He saved us. Gloriously and miraculously and beautifully, light has come into our lives. Light has come into the world. Light has shone. Those angels hovering over the shepherds, crying glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth. Goodwill to men all through the salvation work for us on the cross. And so we just want to take a moment and reflect. Reflect on the area of gloom in your life that maybe God is speaking to you about. Gloom in your finances. Gloom in your mind. Gloom in your self-image. Gloom in your sexuality. And will you say, I have nothing to do to save myself. I have nothing to do to end this gloom. The light has to come from outside. The light has to come from him. Will you receive the coming of the light? That posture of receiving a gift is absolutely the only thing that we can do to be saved. It's all accomplished for us on the cross. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Community Church, visit ovcchurch.ca.